Okay, so we've read through the letter of James, and if you were paying attention, the letter of James prompts, I think, some very uncomfortable questions. The letter says some things that probably should make us wince a little bit. So here's two examples, or two questions that I have. The first one is, is it bad to be rich? Okay, does having wealth put one at odds with God? So verses 9 through 11 in chapter 1 says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And that's the tame one. Okay, the one in chapter 5 Probably, you might not have taken much notice because Aubrey's really sweet and she read it. But listen to this, verses 1 through 3. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. I think that's enough to make you want to sell everything you have and move out to the desert. So that's the first question. Is it bad to be rich? The second one is, is it really impossible to tame the tongue? Is it, are we just doomed to spew things that come straight from hell? So chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. James seems pretty unequivocal about that. And it's enough to make you want to take a vow of silence and move out to the desert, right? So, you know, I think about where we were in Ephesians, and particularly where we were in chapter 1 of Ephesians, where, if you remember, Chad says that Paul, like, grabs us by the hair and takes us up so that we can see the whole scope of God's plan and how everything is going to be united in Christ. And, and it's just amazing language, and it's glorious, and it just blows us away. And we're just like, ah. And by contrast, reading James is like stepping on a Lego. I mean, it just, it has sharp corners, and it's surprising, and it makes you, it makes you suck in your breath a little bit, rather than exclaiming, ah. And I think it's, it's sharp and surprising because it confronts us about ourselves and the things that we believe about ourselves. It makes me think of something that Chad said sometime, uh, that we should not always assume that we are the good guys, okay? We shouldn't always assume that we're the good guy in the story. And so sometimes uh, there are times where James just takes us by the lapel when he talks to us. And that should prompt the question, why was this letter written? Why, what was the purpose of the letter? What was it meant to do? Why is it so stern in some places? And why does it seem to leap from topic to topic without a whole lot of connection? Um, some scholars have said that it's just a collection of miscellaneous sayings by, by James. I don't think it's that. But it does, we do want to ask, why was this letter written? And so chapter 1, verse 1, invites us to do a couple of things. One is to, to find out which James is actually writing this. There are three Jameses in the New Testament. There's James the Apostle, the brother of John. There's James, the son of Alphaeus, who's one of the twelve, but doesn't really get mentioned other than in the list of the twelve. 
And then there's James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, sometimes called James the Just. Uh, we also, in one one, find out who he's writing to and the circumstances that led James to write the letter. So, chapter 1, verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So let's start with the recipients of the letter. When we hear the twelve tribes, we naturally think of the twelve tribes of Israel, right? But that's not what James says. James says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So what does that mean? I think the best way to make sense of this is to refer to something that happens in the book of Acts, right after Stephen is martyred for his faith. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So Stephen's death unleashed a wave of persecution against the church, and it scattered all the believers out of Jerusalem, except for the apostles. And the same events, it's mentioned a couple chapters later in Acts 11, says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And in that passage in chapter 8, it says that as they went, they proclaimed the good news of Jesus as they went. Now, the Greek word for scattered in both of those passages in Acts, it's, it's, used, it's, it's to scatter like a farmer scattering seed and just throwing seed, dispersing seed. And so when Stephen was killed, the church was persecuted. It was driven out with the result that Christians were dispersed. They were scattered like seed all over the world. God was just flinging seed, and they proclaimed the gospel as they went. And they were being seeded out for the expansion of God's kingdom. So when James writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, I think he's referring to this scattering that they have experienced after Stephen's death. He's writing to Jewish converts to Christianity who had been scattered due to persecution. Now think about what it would mean to be scattered in this way, okay? Uh, to be one of the scattered ones. What would that be like? Think of the Ukrainians who fled when Russia invaded Ukraine in February. They had to leave behind their homes. They had to leave behind most of what they owned. And they had to leave behind everything that they knew about normal everyday life. And they had to find food. They had to find shelter. And they had to find safety. And they, in effect, became exiles. And being scattered is agonizing enough. But James's audience, they were only scattered. They were also hunted down and harassed. They didn't just have to get out of town, but they had to keep going because there were people looking for them. So Acts 9, 1 through 2 says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul was out looking for people. He was out looking for Christians. And Paul himself puts it this way before King Agrippa later on in Acts. Paul says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. 
I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So as the Christians were seeded out, as they were scattered, Paul was going after them. He was going to foreign cities looking for them. Saul of Tarsus was a missionary of death. And he went from place to place, rounded up Christians, and he made them suffer for their faith. And so that's what's going on for the church, the 12 tribes of the dispersion at the time that James is writing this letter. Now, put yourself in the position of the leaders of these persecuted people, because as people were seated out, there were leaders among them. Put yourself in the position of the leaders. You're being terrorized by your own people, your own ethnic people, the people that you went to temple with and worshiped God with. You're a refugee fearing for your life, and people are looking to you to know what to do. What do you do? And how do you lead in such a situation? As we'll learn from this letter, some leaders among those in the dispersion were starting to turn toward violence as a solution to what was going on, to return violence with violence. They'd had enough. And now murder was on the table as an option to fight back. And that's a problem because these leaders also profess to follow Jesus, who said things like, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and bless those who curse you. These leaders claim to follow Jesus who didn't fight back and didn't come down from the cross to teach everybody a lesson but instead gave himself up to death on the cross. So you have an already difficult situation, being scattered, being on the run, but now that situation's at the risk of becoming much worse because the church can't become a military operation. It would undermine everything that Jesus had taught, everything that Jesus had said about the kingdom of God and how it operates. The church can't become a military operation. So someone among the apostles, someone among the 12, someone with influence has to write these leaders a letter, how to advise them in such a situation. And somebody has to confront them and say, I know you're in the thick of a terrible trial. I know things are, are tough and that are hard, but you can't respond to it with worldly tactics. You can't respond to this persecution with worldly tactics. As a follower of Jesus, you have to follow him in this and in all other trials, and you have to do it the way that he would do it. Someone has to write that letter. And we know that the letter comes from James, and I think that James is James the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, as, it's, as their name is given in Mark, one of Jesus' first followers, and one of the three in Jesus' inner circle. And I don't have time to get into the different authorship arguments, and you probably don't want me to, if, if we're all honest. But I have uh, taken what I was initially going to say, and I, I put it at the very end of the newsletter that I'll send out on Tuesday. So if you're interested in, in why this James and why not another James, it'll be at the end of the newsletter on Tuesday. So after James's greeting in, chap in verse 1, he reminds them that they're God's scattered seed. And then James writes this, verse 2. 
through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So trials of various kinds immediately opens this text to our lives. James is writing in a first century context to people who are being hunted and harassed. But trials of various kinds opens this up to us. It applies to us. We aren't suffering persecution the same way that James's audience was, but we do meet trials of various kinds. Amen. The Greek word for trials doesn't refer to specific kinds of suffering, but rather it refers to the process of testing itself. So where it says trials, think the process of testing, of being tested. So let's back it up. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet this process of testing in its various kinds. And it's really important to get this because you might experience testing in any number of areas in your life, in your marriage, with your kids, with your finances, with your job, in your relationships, in your neighborhood, with your health, any of those could be avenues, different avenues for testing. But they all fall under this broader category of the process of testing itself that's translated here as trials. So when you see trials here, think the process of testing and being tested. If you want to visualize this, uh, if I had a whiteboard or a flip chart or something, you could do this if you take notes. Draw a circle and in the middle, write trials slash the process of testing and then like spokes on a bicycle just list marriage kids job relationships neighborhood health all the different ways all the various kinds in which we experience testing does that make sense and i think james's word meet where he says when you meet trials of various kinds i think it's a helpful word because it makes me think of meeting somebody on the road, okay? Meeting somebody on the road. The word actually means to fall into the midst of something. So when we think that somebody has, has met with tragedy or has met with calamity, means, it means to fall into the midst of something, which makes me think of unexpectedly meeting somebody that you'd really rather avoid. Somebody that you didn't really want to run into in the first place, but now, you, they've seen you and you've seen them and, and now you just have to keep going, right? Does that ever, does that only happen to me? I'm sure that doesn't only happen to me. You didn't plan to run into them and it's going to be uncomfortable and yet, you know, here we are. And this somebody that you meet on the road who you'd rather avoid, let's, let's give him a name. Let's say testing with a capital T. Okay, so he says when you meet trials of various kinds, so let's think of testing with a capital T. That's who we're meeting on the road. And when you encounter testing on the road, he has a gift that he wants to give to you. And the gifts that he brings are the various trials. They're the spokes on the bicycle wheel that we experience in our lives. And you have to take the gift when you encounter testing on the road. You can't refuse the gift. So when you meet testing on the road, the gift that he gives might be financial cutbacks at work. And you begin to wonder if you're still going to have a job in six months. 
And another time when you meet testing on the road, he gives you infertility and the pain that comes with that door remaining locked. And another time you meet testing on the road and the gift that he gives is a close friend who leaves the church and leaves Christianity altogether, forsakes the name of Jesus. Now, those are bigger, painful tests. But sometimes this person named testing gives you a car that won't start or a rainy day that messes up your plans or a crying baby or heartburn or miscommunication or burning your dinner. It could be any number of things. Because we encounter testing a lot. We meet testing on the road a lot. Pretty much every day in some form. And he always has a gift to share. Does that make sense? You with me? Sometimes testing gives you the same gift day after day because the same trials just show up in your life over and over and over again. Our lives aren't sitcoms where our problems get solved in a half an hour. That's not the way life works. But no matter what the trials look like, what really matters is that they are the process of testing. That's the constant. The trials change, but the testing doesn't change. And when I meet testing on the road, how am I to greet him? Okay, how am I to greet testing on the road? My tendency would be to see him a ways off and think, oh, no, not again. And then when I meet him, I think, great, you I should have known that things were going too well. Don't give me anything. Isn't that how you would greet testing if you met testing on the road? I think most of us would. Well, let's read James 1, 2 again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This is totally counter to how we see testing when we meet him on the road. James says when you meet testing on the road, get excited. Get excited. Receive him like you'd receive an old friend or a beloved relative that you met on the road and eagerly take his gift. Those budget cuts, the infertility, the broken relationship, when you meet testing on the road, receive him with joy. That's what James says. But why? What can justify embracing the process of testing in this way? Well, let's look at three and four again. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Full effect, perfect and complete and lacking in nothing all get at the same idea. They're just different ways of saying the same thing. And they all point to the end goal of maturity. Being made perfect is being made mature, being made like Jesus. And the process of testing leads us to maturity. That's how God gets us to maturity. It's not moral perfection as in never doing anything wrong, but becoming exactly who God intends for us to become in the image of Christ. God is the one who purifies and makes complete his sons and daughters. He doesn't send trials to find out what's in us and to see how we'll respond. God God already knows what's in us. He knows our hearts. He tests us through trials to lovingly bring our trust in him to maturity. So our trust can grow and we can become mature. And this is the path that Jesus himself walked. Jesus never sinned, but he experienced trials. 
And his suffering led to maturity. And when it was time to go to the cross, Jesus had full faith in his father. Hebrews 5 says this, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, and it's the same word as mature, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So Jesus met testing on the road. He suffered unjustly, and his faith in his father led to an indestructible life. And we follow him on this road. We're called to maturity. That's the end goal that God intends for every one of us. And we can't settle for less. We're not allowed to settle for less. We have to have the same zeal to pursue maturity that Jesus did. This is one of my favorite passages in in Lewis's Mere Christianity. He says, Jesus never talked vague, idealistic gas. When he said, be perfect, which is the same word as mature, so be mature, he meant it. He meant that we must go in for the full treatment. It is hard, but the sort of compromise we are all hankering after is harder. In fact, it is impossible. It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be a jolly sight harder for a bird to learn to fly while remaining an egg. We are like eggs at present, and you cannot go on indefinitely being just an ordinary decent egg. We must be hatched or go bad. We must be hatched or go bad. We must become mature or make ourselves and others miserable through our immaturity and to suffer the consequences of our immaturity. So when we meet testing on the road, he's taking us to a good place. He's taking us toward maturity. He's taking us to the place that we really want to go in our heart of hearts. He's taking us by the hand and leading us toward Christ's likeness. And it may seem hard to believe, but testing in his gifts of various kinds, whenever and however he shows up, testing is a friend. Testing is a friend. So James says, get excited when you meet him on the road. Get excited when you meet testing. Treat him like an old friend, a beloved family member. Give him the reception that he deserves because he's taking us to a good place, the place we want to go. But there's a distance between where we are now and reaching full maturity. And that's why we need steadfastness along the way. So James says that testing produces steadfastness, which we might think of as endurance or a refusal to quit. Um, If you've read the book or seen the movie Unbroken, when when I think of steadfastness and endurance, I think of Louis Zamperini holding that big heavy beam over his head for 37 minutes. And, and only dropping it because he's, he's attacked. He's refusing to quit. He's refusing to give in to his captors. We need that kind of determination and refusal to quit as we move toward maturity. Because there are so many things, when trials arise in our lives, there are so many reasons for us to just want to not persist, to not have that kind of endurance. And so we need steadfastness. And so when you meet a trial and you meet God in it, And you trust God in it. God builds something in you. He builds this inner resolve and determination in you to keep going. That's steadfastness. That's what steadfastness is. And God builds that in you when you trust him in a trial. And it makes you want to not give up the ground that you've gained, but to keep going. You don't want to surrender. 
And so when you meet another trial, then the steadfastness that God's built pushes you to receive that trial with joy. Because that's the way to maturity. And you ask God for help in that trial. And he builds more steadfastness in your life. And you do that over and over and over all the days of your life until you die. And then you're in the kingdom. Then you're with the Lord for eternity. That's the process. That's how we're being, that's how we're being taken toward maturity, to be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Testing through trials lets our faith grow. And God builds that steadfastness in us and we move toward maturity. It's that easy. And it's that hard. And it's that easy. And it's that hard. It just depends on if we have the eyes of faith to see our trials as a gift from God for us to move toward maturity. I think of uh, one of the verses in in, uh, How Firm a Foundation that we sang tonight. Thy flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. God is just getting all the dross away, all the things that that impede us from from reaching maturity. So let's look at the verse again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James wrote that to Jewish Christians who were running for their lives. And even under those circumstances, James is primarily concerned that his readers be focused on the big picture, which is growing toward maturity. Even with their lives at stake, James wanted them to become fully grown and mature like Jesus. James says, yes, even while being persecuted, receive even this joyfully. Because by digging in and proclaiming the Lord Jesus, God is building something in you that will take you all the way to being like our Lord. Our call to maturity doesn't take a break for anything. And if if they're running for their lives and James is still emphasizing the need for maturity, I think it shows us that our call to maturity doesn't take a break for anything in our lives. Not our small problems, not our big problems, not unemployment, not cancer, not wounds from the past. Not shattered dreams, not death. God takes it all and he puts it in our service that we may become mature. He puts it in our service so that we can become mature. 1 Corinthians 3 puts it this way. For all things are yours. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. All things are yours. So you and I really can count it all joy when we, when we meet testing on the road in all his various trials. Because he's a friend, and because he's at our service, that we may become like Christ, made perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray.